Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, writer, lover of Shakespeare and Renaissance drama. Today, I'm delighted to chat with Dr. Scott Newstock on Shakespeare and the principles of a Renaissance education. Scott Newstock is professor of English and founding director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowment at Rhodes College. A parent and an award-winning teacher, he's the author of How to Think Like Shakespeare, as well as Quoting Death in Early Modern England, and the editor of several other books, including a forthcoming edition of Michel de Montan's Educational Writings. Welcome, Dr. Newstock. I'm so excited that you're here on Old Books with Grace. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I ask everyone who comes on the podcast two questions. And the first is, what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why? And I know this will be hard for you. Give it your best shot. Uh, I'm actually a big fan of Willa Cather, and I've I've loved reading her work since I was first introduced to my Antonia in eighth grade and then went on to read all of her all of her novels uh, over the course of my college career and I, I really love her novel uh, the professor's house I think that's probably the one that I would pick that is a great answer and also I just read the professor's house oh like really months ago for the first time yes it's, it's an extraordinary book you know that yeah what did you like about it gosh I feel like I need to reread it, honestly, yeah. because it was one of those books where there's a very elusive quality about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you read it and um, the the characters themselves are so interesting, which, it, it, of course, is Willa Cather has a way with drawing out these people in a very in in that elusive way, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I kept feeling like I'm going to need to read this again to pick up on everything that's going on kind of underneath the surface. Yeah, she's really subtle. Uh, she's she's got incredible artistry, and I think it's it is uh, it's invisible to you in a really fantastic way. And I think that made a lot of people underestimate her uh, in, during her lifetime. Um, that yes. she she was often pegged as a regional writer or uh, someone that wasn't as sophisticated as her modernist cohort, but but it's very clear that she knows what she's doing, and that's just an yes. extraordinary novel. Mm-hmm. No, and I I totally agree, and I think um, I my favorite of hers is Death Comes for the Archbishop, mm-hmm. and um, I'm originally from Arizona, and the way that she writes about the Southwest that that was the first time actually that I had read a writer writing about the Southwest, same in the professor's house, mm-hmm. um, that I said, oh, they understand, they, they get the beauty of it. It's a hard mm-hmm. beauty to capture. And she does. And that blew me away. So oh, I agree. That's, a, that's another favorite, but it is, it is exquisite how she's able to capture that landscape and hard, hard beauty is the right phrase for it. And it's the same for her Nebraska novels. And it's the same for everything that she writes. Yes. Ugh. Great answer. So then second, <laughs> which literary character do you most identify with and why? That I have a harder time answering that. I, I, I think it changes over time. You know, this last fall, my family was in Spain. I was on a Fulbright there studying Orson Welles. And we listened to Don Quixote as we were traveling around the country. Amazing. Audiobook. And, uh, 
and it was great fun and it was a wonderful reader and a good translation and we almost had to pull the car over a few times when we would be almost weeping with with laughter at, at some of the interactions between Quixote and Sancho Panza. And I think my kids probably think I'm I'm a Quixote character in terms of being a, a little bit uptight and full of myself and also uh, someone who's prone to go on strange quests and, and adventures that don't always succeed but are, are pretty fun to do along the way. So uh, I suspect that that might be a currently accurate Mm. Ident- identification for me so do you find yourself tilting at windmills fairly often yeah yeah i think more than more than i would care to admit um, i think that's, <laughs> that's probably the case so yeah um don quixote <laughs> i read it and i didn't appreciate it at the mm-hmm. time um i read it when i was in this history of the novel course in my mm-hmm. um in my master's degree and and then I had to reread it for a different course only a semester later. And I liked it so much more the second time. Mm-hmm, and I don't know mm-hmm. why that was, but it, it took some time to, to grow on me. And it, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's really funny. Really funny. Really funny. And, and oddly self-aware and self-conscious, especially that second the second volume, the second novel that is is referring to its own predecessor and its own competing sequels. So... Uh, but the kids, the kids really love the the kind of stern voice when Quixote would start to lecture Sancho Panza and, and would <laughs> would intone, "You should know, Sancho, that such and such." And I think I think they identify that with the with the teacherly parent parent <laughs> voice. So, but they also like to poke fun at it, just as Sancho Panza pokes through all of mm. Quixote's pretensions. So, um, so it was great, a great read. Yeah, it's such a good. Um rapport between yes. Sancho Panza and Don Quixote. Oh, it's, That's it's one ideal. of the joys of that novel. Absolutely right. It is a, it is just a lovely relationship that they have. Very, very poignant and, and hilarious at, at moments too. Yes. So you've written this uh, wonderful book that I really enjoyed called How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from a Renaissance Education. And But I thought before we talked about your book, that we might talk about the man himself for those listeners whose English class days are far behind them. And of course, everyone knows who Shakespeare is, but it's always good to have a little refresher on the shape of his life and when he was living in his context. Um, and plus, uh, his birthday is this month. So I feel like we owe him a little bit of homage right now. Mm-hmm. So do you think you could give us a brief overview of of Shakespeare and his life and his context? Sure. Sure. So you're mentioning the birthday. The day we traditionally celebrate is Shakespeare's birthday is April 23rd. We're not 100% certain that that's the day he was born, but it it is the day he died. So there would be a great a great symmetry if that were the case and we we do know that he was baptized on April 26th, 1564. So we can speculate that he was born a few days before that. So that's a that's a convenient echo or symmetry if if he was born on April 23rd and then died on that same day. And it's also the date of the patron saint of England, um, St. George. So that's a, that's a convenient, a a convenient coincidence too. And it, it's since become celebrated by UNESCO as world book day. Uh, And because a number of authors are are born that day or died that day and including, uh, uh, including the author of the Quixote, including Cervantes though on a different calendar. So they actually are, are, Born, uh, they die on the same date, but they're um, they're 
they're actually different days, you know, because yes. of the Julian Shakespeare Gr- was still on the, the Julian, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, so there's a kind of funny quirk quirk about that that coincidence that they're both April twenty third, sixteen sixteen deaths, but it's not the same day. Uh, it's off funny. by a week, a week and a day. Mm-hmm. I had but no that's idea. Why, that's, yeah. So UNESCO a couple decades ago set up that date for annual celebration of the book uh, World Book Day. So Shakespeare's bo- yeah, it's fun. Um, Shakespeare's born in a rural town of Stratford and grows up there for the first decade or so of his life. And at some point in his teens, he must make his way to London. And we think he starts out as an actor and eventually becomes a playwright who grows to have a share in the theatrical company in which he's working. So he he's a he's a anomaly in the history of drama insofar in in england is that he doesn't die penniless and poor um he he's savvy enough that he gets stuck in the in the very theater company that he's working for so there's all kinds of amazing consequences that come from that that he's he's writing to his own uh repertory company Mm. of of which he's an actor himself so he's got practical knowledge of acting and then also has a long-term relationship with the company, which means that he can write roles for specific humans that are in that company and and kind of play to their strengths. And it also means that he's rich by the time he retires because he's getting a cut of every ticket that comes through the door, as opposed to the other playwrights in the period who were mainly writing. Uh, uh, they were jobbers. They were people that mm-hmm. were being paid per play rather than someone that was getting revenue from all of the ticket sales. So he's about Our a 20 year version of freelancers. Basically. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So not paid well, right. A, a gig economy for, mm-hmm. um, for writers. And as we know that that's, that's not a terribly lucrative career. No, it's um, it's, it, it's lucrative to own the, own the door, you know, to own the box office every time someone's walking through the door. So, so he writes his, his career spans about 20 years, you know, roughly from, 1591 to 1611, give or take a year or there, a year year or two here or there, and then retires for a few years and dies shortly thereafter at age 54 in 1616. Uh, also writes poems along the way, uh, short poems, sonnets, as well as longer, uh, longer erotic poems and, and kind of brief epics that he ends up ends up writing, and collaborates early and late in his career with other other playwrights and so not quite the isolated genius that maybe we have a picture of him in our kind of popular imagination but someone that was a very very much a working person in a in the london theatrical community absolutely one of my favorite classes that i took in that same master's degree Mm -hmm. was a class uh that was informally titled playwrights who had the fortune slash misfortune to be born at the same time as Shakespeare. <laughs> and, um, and it, it really highlighted that uh, communal aspect of mm-hmm. London playwriting that was going on at the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how involved they were in um, each other's work so often, which is an aspect that we can easily gloss over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Involved is a wonderful word for that, that they're, they're almost inter interwoven with each other. They're competitive with each other. They are emulating each other. They're finding ways to uh, lift from each other and shamelessly steal. And then sometimes they're, you know, they're very close friends and they're, they're peers who are 
cohabiting, you know, they're sleeping in this under the same roof, sometimes in the same bed, uh, and are, are have all kinds of fascinating intimacies in their texts as well as in their in their lives together. So, who else besides Marlowe would you read in that class? So, Christopher Marlowe is the first that comes to mind for me. Yes. As Yes, someone who's unlucky enough to be born in 1564. It, it included some other folks who were slightly after, mm-hmm. so John Webster. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. I have my my uh, bookshelf over there, but Webster is the main one that I was like fascinated by. He wrote. For those of you who haven't read any Webster, he wrote uh, some of the just like bloodiest plays you've ever encountered in your whole life um Mm -hmm. revenge plays were very popular Mm -hmm. uh and then um who's the other one that i'm blanking on the name of um i i need to check this now because it's gonna bother me okay okay uh uh thomas kidd and uh, decker Mm mm-hmm if any yeah, a great, a, a great world, a, a great, fascinating world of enormous talent and and competition and one-upsmanship and uh, just a, just a rich, rich moment in in theatrical history. And I'm I'm a huge fan of Marlowe. I, I love Christopher Marlowe. Oh, he's and amazing. I, he's yes. endlessly, endlessly fascinating. And it's it's so clear that he leaves an enormous imprint on Shakespeare. Yes, and it's even interesting. Uh, to wonder about Shakespeare's status had Marlowe not died so young um, because Marlowe was such a, a an immense talent whose career ended really early. Mm-hmm. And so Shakespeare still would have been Shakespeare, of course, but I wonder if we would have held the two of them closer together in our mm-hmm. communal imagination had he mm-hmm. not uh, died at, at a younger age. Yeah, so. I mean, I, you know, Shakespeare... Is born the same year as Marlowe, but becomes a playwright years later than Marlowe does. Marlowe yes. beats him to the professional stage. And so I always say to my students, it's as if you can imagine whatever career you, you'd like to be successful in, you know, whether it's medicine or law or business or nonprofit world, and you you just graduated from college, you're 21, 23, and someone else is already at, at the top of your field that's your age and you haven't even begun in that profession yet. It's like you want to be a filmmaker and George Lucas is 23 and he's already doing <laughs> blockbusters or Steven Spielberg or whoever the case is. That's that intimidation must have just been amazing in 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 Shakespeare lo- looking at Marlowe and seeing an example of someone really successful in exactly the thing that he wanted to do. Totally. It's it's uh kind of striking when you put it in those terms. Mm-hmm. Um so, okay, why in your um, own work and teaching did you choose to focus on Shakespeare and what personally drew you into thinking alongside him professionally and artistically, creatively? I think I was drawn to the the, the period more than the individual. I really... Mm-hmm. I really like that era and maybe it's the same for you in the medieval era in terms of just just being excited about the kinds of intellectual developments that were happening absolutely in roughly that 100 or 150 year window and and you know Shakespeare's a one of many figures in that long era uh and tends to be a focus of teaching just like I'm sure in the medieval 
world that you have kind of Chaucer stands out in that Absolutely. way as being the, the bread and butter of the teaching. Yes. Um, but so in some ways I wasn't drawn to Shakespeare per se, and I was drawn more to the intellectual and social ferment of, of that era, which in some, you know, looks a lot, it looks similar to our era and it looks different than our era in all, all kinds of ways. And that's, that's somewhat cliche that every era is transitional in that way and has seeds of what we do now. But I, I, I love the, I love that sense of, that transition and that ferment in in the era, and then you know I've grown to I've grown to love teaching Shakespeare, and like you said, thinking alongside him or thinking thinking with him, and mm-hmm. also kind of working my way into you know what were the what were he, what was his intellectual formation like that that could help set someone up to do the kind of writing that he did or the kind of writing that his peers were doing. Um, what was the what was the educational and kind of cultural training that they had in the 1500s that that enabled them to to produce the kind of work work that they did? So that that's been really fun to try to unpack that for myself as well as for my students and help. I, I think that helps dethrone some of those figures from a idolized status, and it, they are they're human and they had an incredible education, but it they're not superhuman. Um, they, they had a great, a great basis for the kind of, uh, verbal and artistic practice in, in their educational lives that, that allowed them to do the amazing things that they would later do in, in their careers. Yeah. So then you are anticipating my next question, which is that the, the subtitle of your book is lessons from a Renaissance education. And, um, so I'd love to just follow up on that on what are the the sort of nuts and bolts of a renaissance education so who got educated where did they get educated what tools were they using um cuz your book is uh drawing on on more of the principles of it and as i was reading mm-hmm. i i was curious too about the sort of material aspects of it what did that look mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. so the material aspects that again, if you think about the 1500s across Europe as a transitional era where uh, educational infrastructure started to be built in a way that was permitting slightly more access to education than had been the case in say the 1400s where mm-hmm. it was mostly private tutors uh, or, or church-based schooling. Yes. For, so for, in the case of England, in starting around the 1440s and 1450s, there's there starts to be the beginning of what we would now consider public education, or at least state or community supported education, mm-hmm. uh, which meant that uh, if you were a boy, um, not a girl, for this type of education, you could a girl could obviously have private tutors and private education in a wealthy household, but for public su- publicly supported education, if you were a boy. You, you would be able to attend a school um, without having the wealth or, or the class background that would have been the case in a previous generation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Shakespeare's lucky. He's got good timing, as as does his generation, in insofar as the child of someone from a, a trade class, uh, the tr- child of a glove maker, or the child of a shoe maker, or the child of a drapery maker or a wheel maker, could go to a school supported by their local council or their lo- uh, their local government, mm-hmm. and um, and have a scholarship that would enable them to continue with that education for the next ten years or so. 
So those schools were often very small. They may had maybe 50 or 100 students in them. They often were, uh, they're, they're kind of like the equivalent of a one-room schoolhouse, I guess, that mm-hmm, we would think mm-hmm. about in the 19th century American context. We have a bunch of different ages together. Mm-hmm, multiple ages together. And sometimes that would also entail those older students tutoring the younger ones or helping out the um, the preceptor or the tutor in charge of the school. They, uh, it, it, the, the biggest generalization you can make about that education is it was in, in, intensively committed to verbal facility in Latin. Mm. That the, the, the training in Latin was with the presumption that some of them might enter careers in the clergy or in the government uh, and would would need that Latin for negotiating with other other ambassadors or other agents from foreign nations because Latin was the lingua franca across Europe for centuries. And so if if that's the premium, if that's the goal to have students that are fluent in Latin by the end of that education, you can you can quickly kind of reverse engineer all the things you would need to do to make that happen. Uh, the the training was, you know, in many cases, very rote, but also very creative in, in some some intriguing ways. So obviously they needed to acquire the language first, but then in order to attain that high-level facility, some of the uh, amazing exercises that they went through were designed to help them uh, read and emulate and imitate uh, many classical authors and many classical voices so that they could have facility and imitating the king's voice or imitating uh the queen's voice if they were if they were working in the court or um parsing out uh difficult passages from the vulgate um uh, latin version of the bible so it, it 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 the more you can think about it as a system that was designed to create rhetorically sophisticated writers and speakers the the more you can see why why they were so devoted to the the kind of endless work in Latin that they were doing over and over again across multiple years. Yes. Um, that's a, I, I think brings up something that you talk about in, in your book and something that is always interesting to, to, to us who are working with historical literature is that we tend to put this category of rhetoric in like a bad political empty air kind of place, mm-hmm. but in reality, or not in reality, but in in these historical contexts, rhetoric was the bread and butter, mm-hmm. and rhetoric was bigger. It was about style. It was about um, being able to flexibly and and with agility do these different kinds of writing that were um, that were you know letter writing, poetry. Um, it was all about context. Rhetoric was totally related to context. And we've kind of given that word a, a bad name, but um, mm-hmm. but it's been unfairly tarred, so to speak. Oh, uh, absolutely. It comes up as a lot as you think about this um, whole idea of thinking like Shakespeare. A big part of that is thinking about rhetoric. You're absolutely right. And there's, you know, there are multiple converging reasons for the centuries-long decline of rhetoric from the really the 17th century up until the 19th century into the present. And and we are at the tail end of that, as you say, that we have that pejorative sense of rhetoric as being empty words or or political BS or something that's that is indicating that you're being deceptive. But the 
it, it's interesting because even in the positive sense that we have of rhetoric today, we we tend to reduce it to you know, various schemes and tropes or various ways of turning yes. language as if it, which becomes tedious in its own way because it's a catalog of, you know, 400 uh, different ways of turning language. <laughs> right. And or even, like a very cool kind of manipulation. Like right. It's like right. But it's still, it's still heavily manipulative. Is that's how right. To conceive of it. <laughs> that's totally right. It, it Both of those senses presume that it's about manipulation, maybe for good ends or bad ends, but it's, it's manipulative. Whereas I, I think, I think it's fair to say that rhetoric was, was kind of the art of all arts in this era. It was the sense that you, in order to perform at your highest human capacity, you needed to have the, the utmost facility in deploying not only language, but all of your knowledge and all of, as you said, the contextual awareness of your audience and uh, the history that you're deploying and the, the kind of stock of, of uh, cultural context that's available to you in order to present the best case of whatever you're articulating and make that fit and suit the, the particular audience that you're addressing, whether that's in the court or whether that's in a sermon or whether it's in a uh, courtship or wooing or whether it's in the theater the 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 ideal of that model of rhetoric was something more akin to i like the phrase it's almost like the fabric of thought itself that it's almost like the what the way we think about dna today as being the fabric of of who we are i think i think for thousands of years rhetoric was considered as as we're, we're speaking beings and so what can we do to best master the the capacity for speech and adjusted for every every potential unknown circumstance in the future. So that's a, that is an you're right an enormously larger scope of thinking of what rhetoric means compared to a, either a dismissive phrase or, like you said, good forms of of manipulation. Right. Um, I like the DNA reference. I had not thought of it that way before, but I think that's a really good way of conceptualizing the relationship between. Uh, rhetoric and speaking or writing um, is that mm -hmm. it's actually inextricable from the, the shape that it comes out in. Um, okay, so onto your book, which we've already kind of started wading into, but um, mm -hmm. to talk about a few things, I something that I really enjoyed and that felt very authentically early modern to me was that it's full of other voices than just your own voice um, that are incorporated into your prose just constantly, nonstop, which feels both experimental and very old school in the sense that <laughs> it's uh, it's like the what I immediately thought of is, is when I first started reading older literature at, in, you know, say, late elementary school or middle school, and you start reading 19th century novels or whatever. And they incorporate all these quotes from the past into their into their novel without citing them. And of course, you mm -hmm. cite them, but it's that same uh, free flow where there's a conversation going on that you aren't even necessarily aware of all the time. And you're just, in your book, you're making that apparent that there's this conversation that is constantly ongoing. And that this turns out to be one of the most important parts of your book, that thinking isn't solitary or individual, um, but that it's actually very communal, even when it's only happening by yourself. It's still communal. Mm -hmm. um, so the mind is populated by what it has read and encountered. So 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on how maybe we can develop a more communal way of thinking about thinking in our very individualistic society. You could talk Mm -hmm. more about that. um, You do talk about that a lot in the book. Right. You're absolutely right. And conversation is a word that comes up a number. There's a chapter titled conversation, but it is the premise of the book and the, and you're right. The very structure of how it, it was composed was in that spirit of trying to incorporate or maybe orchestrate as many voices as, as possible and allow, allow those voices to speak, to speak through the book. The, I mean, I think, I think we all are in a, inevitably in a kind of the long shadow of 19th century romanticism, which does have that vision of artistic creation being solitary, or at least yes. the inspiration being solitary. Yes. Uh, and th- that is just not the way this era thought, or frankly, you know, the medieval era, it's not the way most of human no. history has thought about inspiration. It's been no. something much more akin to, I, I engage with the past in order to become familiar with it and internalize it. And then I, I articulate something new it, that emerges from that conversation with the past rather than uh, I, I'm making up something from scratch. Right. So, you know, one word I like to pull on that I think really helps, helps crystallize that notion is a, a word that's from the, from the long rhetorical tradition of, of um, how you compose something or how you compose a speech. And the first stage in that, in the, in the Latin version of that process is in inventio or inventio, which gives us two English words, one being, inventory and one being invention. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think it, uh, you know, we tend to fixate on the invention of making something from nothing or having an idea pop into your head. Whereas the the long tradition of rhetoric thought of invention as something that comes out of making an inventory of what you already know, mm. that the, the stage before you have that insight is thinking about you know, whatever the topic is, like it's lightning, like, well, what do I know about lightning? Or what do, what do I know about the science of lightning? Or are there poems about lightning that I can return to? Or what's my own experience of lightning? Or have I read other things about lightning? And then that allows me to articulate something new for this moment based on what I already know. And so in, in some senses, if you think about it along the lines of it, making an inventory allows you to make an invention rather than those two things being somehow separate or you know, I think the, the we have a tendency to think, well, making an inventory is you're just stocking up stuff from the past and you're right. you're not making anything new. And but in fact, the the model is that you're having a conversation with the past, so you can have a conversation with the present and the and the future ultimately. Uh, so I think the more we can try to erase that false binary of of uh, of creation versus consumption, I, I think those things are much more intertwined than than we are willing to grant. Yeah. And relatedly, you have one of my favorite chapters um, was your chapter on imitation, which Mm -hmm. is totally related to this communal question. And in it, you uh, you talk a lot about how uh, imitation is one of the sort of foundational characteristics of a Shakespearean education, one might say. Mm -hmm. And there's this paradox that only through imitation do thinkers develop their own thinking and writing. Could you tell us more about that and and how the writers and makers of the past conceived of imitation, which we so often just align with a lack of originality? Right. And I think, (laughs) right. No, it's true. It's true. And it is, 
in some ways this this anticipates and echoes some of our current concerns about AI assisted yes. assisted writing which I is I was thinking about is, that yeah yeah which is highly imitative i mean that it's in, in fact it's somewhat it's it's um, it's almost only imitative that it's what it's doing is is mining giant language uh, models and giant text databases in order to produce something that sounds new but it actually it's totally totally derivative mm-hmm. and the but this this era i guess it just works off of the the deep premise, the kind of Aristotle premise that humans are by nature imitative animals and uh creatures and we, of habit. We're creatures of habit and and the more we're aware of that, the more we're able able to be deliberate about the habits that we develop or the the ways that we model behavior mm-hmm. to children or to next generations. And and it's true that Im- imitation as a practice, as a pedagogical practice, can get stuck in that form of just imitating. But in the best instances, I think we all can acknowledge ways in which we have imitated models uh, of all kinds of human behavior that have helped us become our, our own fullest selves. So, you know, just putting writing aside for a second or speaking aside, I think it's I think it's it's easier for us to kind of recognize imitation in the physical arts of, say, uh, uh, performing arts like uh, a ballerina. Uh, mm-hmm learning a move by emulating or imitating someone else's body motions or a piano, you know, you like, you're, you're playing the piano and you really admire this particular pianist and you, you try to sound like them uh, in order to eventually sound like yourself. You're trying to figure yeah. out how, how they made that sound and how you could make that sound. Or even on a more basic familiar level, you love this particular athlete and you love the way she shoots the basketball and you, you practice trying to shoot the basketball that way and you try to imitate someone else. And eventually a kind of wonderful transition happens where you, you incorporate those moves into your own repertory of things that you can do. And then it's, and then that's, those are Grace's moves, you know, those are, that's the way Grace talks and that's the way Grace writes. Uh, And, you know, it's not exactly clear how that, that transition happens. It kind of is, it kind of is magical, uh, and it's hard to know how to teach that evolution. But it is—I think it is clear. You 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 see all the time examples of writers and musicians and visual artists who had, you know, frankly derivative early stages in their career where they were on purpose trying to sound like or write like or paint like or move like the people they admired, and then something almost alchemical happens and they they're able to synthesize all of that and and make make those repertorial moves their their own yes whilst while still holding on to that those are their roots and that that's mm-hmm. what it's emerging out of like a like pl- like a plant right it is um, like a plant mm-hmm. i i'm i'm really fascinated by this idea because we i feel like there's this uh, well, everyone wants to be original, especially in this age of social media and in like what's new, what's fresh, like novelty is valued above all things. And so then you, uh, we don't, we often don't give people s- space. I think especially older people, g- grown ups, to go through this phase of imitation and being derivative of something. Mm-hmm. This actually mm-hmm. really valuable and unskippable phase of doing these things. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I I think it's interesting that we know this is how people learn because we watch, uh, I know you're a parent, I'm a parent. You watch Mm -hmm. your kid uh, acquire language 
Mm-hmm. And they start saying things you say. And it's really funny because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm hearing my own words come out of my child's mouth mm-hmm. as they are developing their own way of communication. But then we think somehow that we will eventually leave that stage behind in full. And I think that's what I, I'm I'm interested in that that never truly happens, that it's always going to be there in us to some extent, mm-hmm. but that it becomes also something else. That mm-hmm. there's that um fascinating tension there um that i i think is actually really beautiful in a sense um that it never that it becomes its own thing and it also never quite leaves us i like, like that it, it no it be you know one one metaphor that gets used in in this era is is something like incorporation or ingestion that yes. you are you're taking something within you i mean in, in the crude form it's almost like cannibalism that yes. you're, you're ingesting somebody else or you're incorporating them in the literal sense but there there is also that sense of um the good form of ingestion that it's it's sustaining it it you it becomes a part of you 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 transform it um it's nourishing and you you know you have gratitude for it and you respect it and it's yes. it's not alien to you but it's something that you that you need to feed on regularly and uh and it's it's not like you eat at some point and then you never eat again but it's, right. it's a it's a regular habit or a regular practice and i think we we also have the sense of when ingestion does not go well uh the montaigne talks michelle de montaigne talks about this like there's a it's a bad example of a student if they ingest their readings and then they regurgitate them if they kind of yeah. spit, <laughs> spit them out for the exam. Up. Right. Un- and they have undigested, it. unnourishable. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I, I've heard students say that explicitly in talking about how they don't like, you know, curtain models of testing where they, I just memorized it and I just, I just regurgitated it for the exam, but I, I never really remembered it. And so I think that's a, that's a pretty powerful image for the bad form of this and a, and a, also a powerful powerful image for the good form of it that there's something again a, a magical you said or alchemical or transformative that happens somewhere along the way uh, the other image that Montaigne likes which is a very old image he's he's borrowing it from generations of writers before him appropriately is the image of the of the bee going from flower to flower yes. and gathering pollen and then eventually somehow transforming that into honey and that he says that's the model for what a good student does. And at, at, at one level it's derivative and it's just pulling things from other people. And then at, at some level it turns into something new. And it, you know, he's also a little naive about how bees work. Like no bee is solitary, that that's a very collective activity. Uh, But it is, it is intriguing to, to just think about that, that the, the way that the things that we absorb or the things that we take in become a a part of us. and, And it's an ongoing process, as you said. Yeah, and 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 I think um, something that we don't think about as as much sometimes is that we are letting what we're taking in change us, right? So that's how it's not just a regurgitation or a, or a mm-hmm. vomiting back up of what you've learned, but that it is actually sinking into you as a person, um, and that's a, a part of education. You you touch on this in your book, too, in thinking about what the ends of education are. But a part of education that is, is hard to think about and hard to conceptualize is that idea of letting it change you and being open mm-hmm. to that. Um, mm-hmm. 
because that's how it then can become your own and not merely uh, a scantron vomit, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's I think you know that's threatening and it's it's stabilizing it if you if you if you're intimidated by that. Understandably, in some ways, it's a lot easier just to do the regurgitation yes. and to yes. and to go through the motions of what I need to do to pass this exam so I can do the next exam so I can graduate to the next class so I can take the next exam. And, but it, it becomes a, it, uh, it, it, it turns into the, the, the means overtake the ends, you know, that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing this stuff and eventually I'm doing it. I seem to be doing it just to keep on doing it and, and yes. to getting to the next level, almost like you're in a video game or something, but you're not, yeah. <laughs> you're, there's not actually an ultimate end of, as you said, to, to be transformed or to be changed your, yourself. Uh, it's, it's like, this is something that's separate from me. It's, it's, it's something I have to deal with and it's something that I have to work through, but it's not, it's not working through me. It would be yes. a way to think of it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So something else um, that you discuss is this, the, the idea of the, co- of a common stock of knowledge, which is of course an ancient idea, this drawing upon a well of knowledge that, that then there are specialists or, teachers or what people in the past would have called a schoolmaster, a master or a magister. And today, and and this has been happening for a while now, this is not a new concept, but we're at like a sort of peak of it. All the thinkers like Hannah Arendt talks about it um, in the last century, but we often get confused between an idea of authority and, and authoritarianism. We're really worried about authoritarianism, so we avoid authority or like an authoritative position. And this is a really hard, hard question and a hard um, uh, distinction. So what's the difference between those things? And how can that difference instruct us as we're learning to think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the aren't the aren't meditations on the difference between authority and and uh, authoritarianism, or even just the the general sense of tradition, is are, are amazingly powerful and shape my thought in all kinds of ways that I probably don't even realize. But I but I, I really am grateful for. I mean, I think she she does think that we make a, a mistake in conflation of those two categories. Like politi- obviously, we're, we don't believe in political authoritarianism, but we we mistakenly transfer that resistance to authoritarianism into being resistant to any authority yes. uh, in or, or someone, maybe a better way to put it would be someone who's authoritative that they've, yes. they've, they've earned the right to be considered authoritative through their, uh, I'd like to use the language of craft in the book and through their, through their immersion in the craft of what they're doing. Yes. Um, and it, um, I think, I think we've kind of overcorrected and, and developed a, or, a unhelpfully reflexive sense that um, that all authoritative knowledge is somehow oppressive or it, it's somehow yes. elit- elitist or exclusionary as opposed to, you know, this, this person's authoritative in doing this thing. They're not authoritative in everything. They, yes. you know, maybe, they, maybe they know how to, you know, cook in a particular way that's authoritative, but they're not a great basketball player, or maybe they know how to write in a certain way that's authoritative that works for them in this discipline, but not in, not in others. And so I think I just, I, I, as I was drafting the book, I really kept on coming back to that notion of the craft workshop as being, mm. I think a, a, a better analog for 
how learning and development happens in the best circumstances. And again, I think just just because of the physical aspect of of thinking about a craft workshop, it's easier for us to say, oh, this person knows how to do pottery and I don't. And I am I'm entrusting myself to their authority to help me learn the material and how to work with the material and how other people have worked with this material before. So that way I can accrue some of that authority myself, but it's not in some ways the the craft model is helpful because it, it externalizes the, um, the thing being worked on. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Which is ahead. different yeah. when you're talking about a brain or a mind, right? Right. That there's somebody who's more authoritative than you in a matter of the mind feels a lot more like a slippery slope. Sometimes it does. It does. I think you're right. It's more intimidating, and it and it does feel like it risks um, some of what gives us pause about dogmatism. But it but the craft model helps me just because it's you know the the, the object is external to both the teacher and the student or both. Yes the master and the apprentice, like the, again, just to play off of the pottery, like the clay, the clay has always been worked in this way. And there are things that people have learned over time about working that clay. And someone happens to know a lot of that because they've been working with that material and they've been learning from other people and they can help you find ways to shape that material. But it's not about, um, something that's innate in the teacher, you know, it's yes. not, it's yeah. something that they're transmitting or transmuting. Uh, they're, they're transmitting it to you. They're, they're hand, you know, the, they're handing on the tradition to you, Yes. but they are not the, they're not the first person or the, or the last person to have worked with that material. They're, they're kind of a conduit for something that preceded them and that, something that they hope will, will follow them, whether through you or whether through someone else. So um, but I think you're right to be, you know, our hesitation is it's about, it's, it's, it's easier to externalize it as a physical object in a, in a, in a workshop, in a craft workshop. And it's, it becomes more delicate when we're talking about the mind. Yeah. But I think that the, the craft workshop is a really good way of thinking about it because it, you, you apply that and you think about that. And if you were, would all of us at some point have hopefully in our lives had the pleasure of having a really good teacher mm-hmm. and we can recognize the the authority that that teacher has. And it might not mm-hmm. be like authority again, another word like rhetoric that has that unfortunate uh, <laughs> connotations of somebody mm-hmm. who's um, foreboding and strict or, or some, something to that effect. And sometimes, uh, sometimes people with authority are that way, but mm-hmm. a lot of times the authority it, um, I like your idea of the of the conduit, right? Where it's mm-hmm. a, a something that you're receiving from them, and you and you give give them the respect of your attention, mm-hmm. uh, of your deep attention. Um, and this is it's it's a tricky it's a tricky one, and there's not like a clear drawn line in the sand that <laughs> that clarifies, but but that mm-hmm. basically you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater on authority because we really need to learn from people who know more than we do is Mm -hmm. what it boils down to. (laughs) I think so. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's not, there's no human who's authoritative on everything. And, you know, most people are not authoritative on many things. There may be just a few things and, and maybe you wouldn't respect them in those other domains, but in, in that domain that, that you, you do have something to learn from them and that there's something you know, wonderfully even collaborative about the way that the the student, the, the person who's yearning for access to that authority is helping draw that out of the, 
of the person who's practiced it or the person who who has it that there's there's a, a really almost mystical transaction that's going on yes. there in the best of circumstances. Yes. And again, I, we've all had horrible teachers too, and yes. so we can we can also recognize the lack of that or you know speculate about what's missing. And there's there's lots of different ways that that educational environments can go badly or or not work or misfire. But but I do think you're right that if you if you step back and you try to think about uh, reflect on cases where it did work or where you did learn something. Um, and that can be, uh, that does not have to be in a school that can be in all kinds of circumstances. Absolutely. It can be your, your workplace or your house of worship or um, a family transaction. But, but there is something in common there about, about someone who knows, uh, knows a practice and is able to either model it or transmit it or convey it to you in, in all kinds of subtle ways that are very hard to articulate. But I think, you can step back and recognize that something happened there and that yeah. you that you did learn something from from that person. Yeah, and I think key to that is that you have to acknowledge that this person knows more than you do. Mm-hmm. In in the process of of learning, you're not going to learn anything if you're constantly saying I know more than you. <laughs> like just in general in any mm-hmm. craft, mm-hmm. sport, uh language, whatever. Um, and that's, you know, we know that there's a paradox about knowledge too, which is that the more you know, the more humility you tend yes, to hope, yes. hope that you have about the limits of your knowledge or you you recognize that the the zone of what you know, of what you don't know is actually far more vast than you ever realized. And the danger is when you're, when you're ignorant, you don't think you have yes. those, those vast realms of ignorance. So there's something, there's something complicated there going on as well about, um, self-knowledge that's necessary to to be willing to seek out uh people that are authoritative for you yeah and maybe that's the the key too as a teacher yourself is that you can never let your authority become more than it is Mm -hmm. you you have this I, i mean that was absolutely my experience of my getting my doctorate in in medieval literature is that the more medieval literature i read the more I realized I didn't know and would mm-hmm. never really understand. It was mm-hmm. constantly swimming out into a deeper water that where mm-hmm. my feet were even further from the bottom than they had been before. And, and so I think then at some point you start to realize, Oh, now I'm an authority on medieval literature, which is silly sounding to me, but mm-hmm. holding that knowledge of the deep water below you while while being able to teach is, is seems like one of the biggest lines between authority and authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully, that's, that's nicely put. I really like that. Um, and it, and again, that doesn't go away. That's a lifelong Mm-mm. process of, uh, I mean, there's some wisdom in being able to recognize the limits of your, of your knowledge and where the boundaries are and, and being frank about that with yourself as well as, as well as your students and not, not act as if you are a know-it-all or not act as if you're, authoritative in realms where you just frankly aren't and and maybe you could point them to better better people that are better suited to help them whether that's a suggesting a reading or suggesting another human being to consult yes so we're coming up on um an end of time but i have one more question for you because we've been talking about these themes in in uh, a renaissance education in in thinking like shakespeare and your book is full of them it's really fun uh, and and provocative and thoughtful um but while considering all this especially as teachers or as parents um i 
you have school-age kids. I have school-age kids. I think and worry about the craft of thought a lot. Um, how do we avoid the trap of nostalgia? I, I think, you know, I, I try to be very honest about saying there, there are many things about older forms of education that we certainly would never want to recuperate that are, uh, you know, corporal punishment and um, extreme limits of access to, to education, whether it's based on uh, gender or it's based on um, religion. So there's, you know, I'm not, I hope I'm not over idealizing or pre- presenting a rosy picture of, of, uh, of humanist education, but I, I do think that, what what I was trying to do in the book was to reflect on what I loved about my own education, what I found frustrating about my kids' current education, and things that clearly worked for Shakespeare's generation and other other generations of of writers, and could still be recuperable today. And I, and then I think as I started to do that, it became more and more clear, like, wow, this is really weird that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater because yes. we think that imitation's bad. So what is, what is actually helpful about imitation and obviously being aware of its limits, but trying to, trying to step back and say, well, there has to, there actually, there had to have been good things about that because it just worked for a really long time. And, yes. um, and you know, there, there had to have been good things about being in a room together that, that people who are kind of techno utopians don't want to hear um, right. And there, and there had to have been good things about dealing in, with a multi generational classroom and dealing with um, adults who knew something about a topic. So, again, I'm uh, I, I'm very careful about not trying to be perceived to even fall in the trap of no. And over, I didn't over think nostal- you were. No, I know, just, but I'm I'm I'm, to... I'm self I am self conscious about it because it's very easy to you know, that sounds exactly like what a Shakespeare professor would say, or sounds exactly like what a medievalist would say. Yes. And, and I'm not claiming that it's a fallen golden age, but I, I do think that there are, are some helpful continuities between um, some of the insights that earlier eras of teaching have had that could be a corrective to some things that I think we've kind of willingly forgotten or, or absentmindedly forgotten today. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that does it does give me hope to be to look at as I think I think your point about just remembering good teachers that we've had uh, it it does give me hope that there's something innate about the desire in humans to transmit things that they care about yes um, and 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 people have always been frustrated with schools too you know Shakespeare's plays are full of of mockery of of schoolmasters and and students who can't wait to get out of out of school so it's not as if this was um, some kind of Eden in terms of how, how it worked on a day-to-day basis. But what I was, I, think I was trying to abstract the practices that are, I think, still viable uh, for us today. And, and, and to, just to use the, the occasion as a, as a reflection to, to say, you know, what, so what did work and what might work still for us today? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's always going to be a process of discernment. Um, mm-hmm. And when you try to shortcut the discernment is when you either get into nostalgia or into like a, a overly optimistic, like everything new is good. You know, online learning is the way of the future, mm-hmm. full stop, like mm-hmm. that, that be, really becomes a problem um, is if you're, if you're short circuiting these processes of taking seriously how humans have been learning together for a long time. 
And the, and there are no shortcuts. I mean, there's no, no there's no this because being a human is so complex. There's never going to be a silver bullet or a shortcut to learning. And it's it's always complex, and it and it is it is misguided to try to over idealize or villainize a, a past practice. You know, I think some of the debates that are happening right now about uh, the rise of classical education in in primary and secondary schools, I think fall into that either or trap like yes. either this is like the magic pill that's going to solve everything or this is a horrible thing and it's it's contrary to what everything we know about pedagogy today and it, you know they're both wrong and they're and both kind of missing the point about about what was what was behind um the premises of this kind of education so um so i think you're i think that's well put what you're saying about about discernment there yeah it, it does seem to have been a uh a real hot topic lately, I will say. Mm -hmm. My kids don't go to a classical school, but I feel like it's very in the air right now, a lot of these mm -hmm. questions. Um, and it, for those folks who are interested in these kinds of questions, I definitely recommend your book. Um, there's a lot that we haven't had time to touch on that is, uh, I think, I, I just want to say too, in, in conclusion, I've talked a lot and you've talked too about thinking uh, as a teacher, thinking as a parent, but I think e even more so it's a lot about thinking about how you as a person want to keep learning and thinking and growing and how that can, that happens even outside of a schoolroom. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of these things that you discuss in your book are, are things that we need socially um, flexibility of thought uh, and a communal, a return to communal um, ways of thinking together, and uh, even when we disagree with one another, and so, uh, and, th and throughout our lives, not just for our sixteen years of our or twelve years of our that's lives. Right. But, but that's really right. That's right. These are very mm -hmm. much. I, I think that's why uh, your note on it's how to think like Shakespeare. Uh, it's thinking doesn't leave or, and if it does, then we're in big trouble. Yes, so, we are. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Uh, last thing, where can folks find you online if they are interested in learning more about what you're up to? Sure. So I, I teach at Rhodes college in Memphis and I, so I have a faculty profile there. And then I also have my own personal website, which is my name, Scott Newstock. And you can Google it and it'll, it'll come up right away there. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, that was really fun to talk about thinking and learning like Shakespeare and these facets of a Renaissance education. So Thanks. Thank it was a real, a real pleasure, Grace. It's nice to meet you. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. You can find me on my monthly Substack newsletter, gracehammond.substack.com. It's called Medievalish with Grace Hammond, and it features more fun medieval things that you can check out. You can also find me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. And I'd love to hear from you, um, your thoughts. And if you uh, wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the show, that is super helpful to the podcast and helps other people find it. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.